Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with George Edelman for the No Film School podcast the week of October 25th, 2019. We're going to be talking about a painful experience, a movie getting canceled the day before it starts shooting with Alexander Payne. We're going to, in tech news, we're going to talk about Da Vinci 16.1 coming out. We've got some stuff on behind the scenes for the amazing movie Moon. And we have an Ask No Film School about the future of freelancing in an AB5 universe in California. That's all the stuff we're covering this week on the No Film School podcast. Since 1996, Film Tools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, Film Tools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at FilmTools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to FilmTools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. All right, our top story this week. The day, literally the day before it starts shooting, Alexander Payne's new movie got shut down. That is, uh, I mean, look, if you're not an Alexander Payne fan, you should be. He's amazing. There's definitely, you know what? I'm even going to say I kind of like downsizing. I don't think it had an ending, but it had such a great opening that I'm even going to forgive its lack of an ending. And watching Christopher Waltz play a scumbag is so much pleasure. Um, but he's, you know, he's had a pretty stellar career. Sideways is great. Citizen Ruth, his first feature is great. He is arguably one of the strongest and most consistent working filmmakers we have. I know some people didn't like downsizing and I know that it flopped, but I don't know that it's, I don't know that he should ever have made a $70 million big studio sci-fi special effects movie. I don't know that he has that audience. Um, and frankly, I watched that movie with my father-in-law one Christmas, and I think he enjoyed it too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out there in defense. Downsizing, even the ending doesn't work, but whatever. Um, so his new movie, uh, which is an adaptation of, correct me if I'm wrong here, George. It's an adaptation of My Struggle, right? Yes. Or, yes, Osgard. You know, My Struggle, which is a bold thing to title your book, I think. Um, <laughs> you want to give, we could give a little context on why <laughs> people should know <laughs> i mean i think he probably knows right i think yeah. he's i mean it could almost even be said to be reclaiming that title um right. mein, mein Kampf could be translated as my struggle although it could also be translated as other things but yeah uh it is often translated as my struggle so carl orzanosgard I'm never going to say his name right. I feel like he's the Benedict Cumberbatch of novelists. Um, That's pretty good, I yeah. think. I mean. Um, well, I feel like I just imagine the Swedish chef as a cook, and that's who I get. As a writer. <laughs> the Swedish chef is a writer. So he pulled out at the last possible minute, apparently the day before he walked, um, which is, I mean, first off, Mad Mickelson, also really consistently great, was going to play the lead. So here's the thing. First off, Alexander Payne is apparently notoriously very charming. Um, I've heard from, you know, people who've worked with him that he's like quite pleasant. He, you know, all of that wine knowledge in Sideways is all of his wine knowledge. He owns a <laughs> restaurant like he is fun to be around. But this is a job in which we do have to remember that like all the the stakeholders in a project 
it is important to it is important as a filmmaker to remember that people can walk and i wonder if that relationship between alexander payne and carlos nosgard uh fell apart towards the end due to a lack of attention my suspicion is that if the writer had worries about how this was going to go the amount because you know in the last two to three weeks before you start shooting anything you're so distracted by all of the billion like things that are required to be as a director i wonder if he just drifted away and a writer who hadn't worked on a movie before and who didn't know that it gave them opportunity to ruminate and worry that's my complete outsider's guess i wasn't involved in any of this but i'm assuming that things were great early in pre-production where everybody could get along and spend a lot of time together and really hash things out and then as the production date got closer, Alexander Payne probably had less and less time to massage that relationship, and the writer had more yeah. and more time to ruminate on what could go wrong with the movie. Yeah, could be. I think that there's, uh, you know, that... I think what what I think is interesting about it is that even when you're Alexander Payne, who you mentioned is a very successful and well-respected for good reason auteur almost right he's a writer director so he's more than you know he's a very uh he's a voice yeah um, and even then things go south suddenly in shocking ways and this isn't he's actually had a couple projects that were kicking around recently that didn't quite get off the ground and i think you know to tie it into a larger narrative that's happening in our industry right now it's very hard to get these kinds of movies made all the way through, like even in the 11th hour, things can go wrong. Um, the industry is focusing more and more on a different kind of project. And we're seeing all kinds of outcry and backlash about, you know, from various corners about what is cinema or isn't and what kinds of movies we should be making or shouldn't. And are platforms like Netflix even really a place for movies or is it like made for TV? You know, going back to that that little brush up with Spielberg that I yeah. guess has since sort of fallen away. But I think that all of that to me, it's just a reminder that even if you're Alexander Payne, he's an Oscar winner, right? For Sideways and for, he, I mean, he's certainly been nominated. Well, you know uh, who won? Screenplay. You know who definitely won for Sideways is the... Oh, no. Was it Sideways that he won for? The Dean? No, The Descendants. Dean from Community, if you're a Community fan, any communities out there, fans out there. The Dean is also a screenwriter. Oh, yeah. And he won yes, for... He, so yes. he's an Oscar-winning screenwriter, the actor yes. who played the Dean, which is like one of he those... He co-wrote. Just, yeah. Yes, yeah. he co-wrote... Jim Rash. What is... Yeah, Rash and Faxon, I think is his name. Yeah, they're a tandem. They co-wrote it. But yeah, um, that's a good movie. And... Uh, I love election. Elections and elections. Great. Descendants. I, great. What it is interesting to me to wonder. Oh, what's the about, one about Schmidt? Was that the Jack about Nicholson Schmidt's phenomenal? One? It is. He's I think great. He's he's, he's a unique voice and a storyteller, and it's hard to make those kinds of movies. That's the bottom line. It's well, just and also very what's hard. amazing about him is he, how interested he is in the center of America. Like he, as a person, is probably a coastal elite. I can't remember if his restaurants in Omaha or in Manhattan, but like I'm sure he comes <laughs> up. But like he is. You know, he is very interested yeah, sure. in telling real stories about the actual middle of America. Way more than half of his movies are set in Omaha and uh, in a very and the, I, real the, you sing, world. Yeah, like I you saying Omaha reminds me of Nebraska, which is yeah. also phenomenal. I love that movie. That was a great movie. 
He's well, and, a very good filmmaker. And I spent a lot of my childhood in a very small, like, 30,000-person town in rural Illinois. And so his movies about the heartland are one I really recognize and one that's very absent of, like, stereotype or being condescending to America. Like, there's a real embrace of the wide array of humanity that lives in the center of this country and a real, like, nuanced portrait of it in Alexander Payne movies and that is something that, like, you know, first off, downsizing sort of went another direction with. So, you know, you ended up going a different direction there. But it's also interesting. I was really excited about this project because it seems like Alexander Payne covering a movie about Nosgard traveling around America is sort of like yeah. a perfect duo. But it goes back to that big thing with, like, Coppola and Scorsese and Spielberg and whether, where these kind of projects belong now because the studios are not as likely to risk money on them although i will like to the end of the earth i will defend paramount for gambling 70 million dollars on a sci-fi epic by alexander payne um strange decision totally not sure i I mean those are look that's why (laughs) i mean that's why um it makes i don't want to the thing that gets lost in all the back and forth and the commenting is that there there's there's good reasoning on all sides here because there's a reason a studio would rather invest in IP that people are going to show up to see regardless. It's a much safer investment. And these aren't, it's not like it's one mind. It's a, you know, board of trustees and stockholders and major corporations. So these are decisions that have to be made with a lot of considerations, but giving a lot of money to Alexander Payne to make a movie is a great idea from the perspective of wanting to see interesting movies, whether they fail or succeed uh, creatively or financially and Alexander Payne is just an interesting storyteller and this is this movie falling apart in the last uh, minutes is not a result a reflection of the marketplace even per se it's a reflection of something going wrong suddenly where the the you know guy with the rights to the story decides he wants to back out which is but uh, I well do within like, his right. And he may have had great reasons to do it, too. Who knows? But I we love that it's old school emotional reasons. Like, from what we can tell, <laughs> it was literally someone just being like, no, I've changed my mind. I don't want my story on screen. I'm backing out because it doesn't feel right. And, like, so many of the times these things pull out. These things pull out. Like, you know, a movie falls apart because... It turns out the studio executive was like, you know, drunkenly yeah, shouting yeah. at someone in a parking lot. So he got fired and all his movies went away or. Right. I mean, tur- there's also the we, we reference. Sorry to cut off, but I wanted to point out we reference in the in no film school in the article we wrote about it, that it's it's an, it's nice to know that it wasn't something like controversial or ugly. That was at the heart of the reasoning either, like somebody did something awful. Or also math. Like, you know, sometimes you hear about movies because it's like, you know, somebody in the analytics department was like, actually, that star doesn't have enough of a Twitter following that overlaps with the predicted audience that we, you know, and it's like, they're pure analytic reasons that movies get made and not made these days. And so I really like the fact that apparently this was just an old school, no thank you, I've thought about this and the day before production starts. And frankly, at least it was the day before production starts. I mean, that sucks, but it wasn't like. (laughs) It sucks that it wasn't like the day, like five days in or whatever. Well, it's also also, like depending on, it sounds like this writer had, I mean, and good for this writer for keeping it. It sounds like this writer had a lot of rights. Like I've never heard of this happening in the feature world, but I have tons of friends who have done music videos. I have a friend who made two separate music videos where after they were done, the band decided for whatever reason they didn't like them two really good music videos, like music videos that should have made this person's career. And then the end of the band was like, you know, I think we're going a different direction. And in one of them, the, the 
lead singer didn't like his haircut. And so these music videos just never came out. Like, hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars got spent, and uh, they just never happened. So, like, there is a scenario where this movie got made, and then the day before release, the writer was like, no thanks. And so, like, at least it was not shot. At least it just lives in dreams and not in some vault uh, yeah. somewhere only being screened. That reminds me of an experience I had on a uh, piece of branded content for a pretty major corporate client that uh, I developed and pitched and they liked and it was a fun little idea and we shot it and spent some money on it and put a lot of work into it and really liked it and they just were like, okay, cool. And they're like, we're never putting it anywhere. (laughs) And we never even found out why. It was just like, oh, well, that sucks. We still have it. We, you know, it's on reels and such. But it was just like such a, wow, really? Because they don't care. They're just like, yeah, we're not doing that marketing plan anymore. But, you know, it happens. It's part of what it is. And uh, the other the other thing that um, that this just reminds me of is that uh, some people are not. And I think this is kind of cool as thrilled to be put into a movie or TV as we always assume everybody would be. Right. Some people are like, hey, you know what? I'm good. I don't need that. I just think that's like we you know, if you live in L.A., you feel like everybody is desperate to get that and they're finding all different manners of ways in. And it's kind of cool that there's a guy who writes books. Books are, you know, a great medium that we don't talk a lot about anymore. (laughs) And he's just like, nah, I'm good. I don't want it to be a movie. I don't need that in my life. I think that's kind of cool. All right, moving on to tech news. This is a new thing where we're going to start doing tech news earlier to split up our like headliney stuff. Tech news this week, DaVinci Resolve 16.1 is officially out of beta. So just a quick reminder, 16 left beta in August. And so some of you are thinking, well, what? When they left beta with 16 and released what we call the stable release of 16, they also released a 16.1 beta because there were some new features they were excited about that weren't quite stable enough yet, but were interesting enough they wanted them out in the field. Now 16.1 is out and stable. Now, TV shows, TV networks, film schools, none of them are probably going to upgrade until at least January, if not the summer, because we're in in the middle of the swing of things. We're in the middle of a TV season or we're in the middle of a semester, so you're not going to see anybody upgrading right away. But if you're not in the middle of a project, if you're not about to deliver something next week, you should totally check it out. There's two key features in 16.1 that make it really interesting. One is just sort of a new thought. Well, we'll deal with the simpler one first, which is if you do a multicam job, you usually, these days, you usually make sure all the cameras get the same time code. You can wire them together for time code. You can use a locket box. You can use the dish time code box. Uh, a lot of people get time code out of their sound recorder to all the cameras. And once all the cameras have the same time code, you can like highlight them in Resolve and group them together into grouped clips. But Resolve now has a new thing called synced bins, which means everything you put in that bin automatically syncs. You don't even have to highlight them to sync. You don't even have to, like, do anything. So, you know, if you're on, like, a multi-camera reality show, if you're on a multi-camera concert show, and all of your clips are just sunk together by time code, you're not doing it. You just throw them in a bin, and boom, they're sunk together. And that's kind of a nice feature, actually. It's one of those things that you're like, oh, it doesn't save a ton of time, but it saves a little time for people in certain workflows. So that's a cool thing that comes out with 16.1, but the more cool thing is a feature called close-up. And what close-up is all about is close-up is an auto-reframing tool that uses, here come the buzzwords, artificial intelligence, neural engines, and machine Ooh. learning 
uh, to identify faces in your footage the same way faces are identified in your footage with like Facebook. You put you put something up on Facebook and Facebook is like, is this you? Is this your friend? Same face identifying tech. And it lets you do close up. So if you're shooting a super high resolution like 8K, but you're finishing 1080, you'll often like punch into shots for close ups. That's a thing people do. With It used to be you had to go to the inspector and go to zoom and pan and tilt and sort of set it right. With close-up, it literally just identifies faces and lets you click on them to close up on them. Again, it's not going to save a ton of time, but it's like little refinement time-saving techniques that are actually kind of useful and nice and appreciated. And an interesting place where like neural engines and AI, I don't think machine learning is going to come and completely remove people's jobs anytime soon, any more than I think tractors uh, ruined all the jobs in farming. But I do think it's interesting that it's like, it's going to come and it's going to speed up some things we do. So there's going to be tasks we're doing in posts. And then a robot, which is basically what this is, a little machine learning robot that lives in the software, is going to speed up our reframing for us. So if we're doing a lot of it, we're saving a little bit of time here or there. And I think that, you know, we're in a wave where we're going to start to see lots of little things like that coming into um, the process. So I think that's kind of cool. I'm sort of into that. Um, so, yeah, those are the big things coming from 16.1 Stable DaVinci Resolve, which is out this week. Have you uh, have you started using it at all? So I haven't started using the close-up tool. I have been using a tool from 16 that I think it's good to remind people. The Neural Engine, if you have Resolve Studio, the $300, $299 version, um, there's a tool that will auto-face detect all of the people in your footage and create bins. So if you shot like a documentary and you interviewed like, you know, 10 different people on 10 different occasions, you can like have it analyze all that footage and it will find... It'll be like, oh, hey, you interviewed this person twice. It'll identify their face in clips. You can then, like, name the person, and it will sort a bin of all those people for you. Um, so in narrative work, you know, this is also super huge. You have a three-person dialogue scene. Yeah. You're not breaking it down by character. It's recognizing the faces and breaking the footage down for you. I've played with that a little bit. I haven't used it a ton, but it's certainly one of those things where you're like, holy shit, Snacks. This is, yeah. like... It makes sense that software can do this. I know Facebook's been doing it for five or six years now. So it's nice to start <laughs> to see that technology show up in motion picture post-production where you're like, oh, yeah, this will, like, save me time and make things sort of um, nicer when working on some projects. Honestly, it's one of those things that I think the technology is going to the technology is gonna move faster than people are going to adapt to it. Like, you know, yeah. we all know those features and in, in, we've all had those moments with like very long experienced editors and you're watching them work and you're like, oh, whoa, you're doing it exactly the way you would have done it in 1998 because you haven't like all of the new tools Media Composer's <laughs> built to make it faster. You haven't learned. You know how to do your thing and you know how to tell stories. So I think it's right. gonna, I think we're going to see a younger generation of editors who are coming out of schools now and undergrad now, maybe even in high school now who are like. Of course, I'm going to use the neural engine to break down my footage. And then in five years, we'll start to see that more in professional suites. Although maybe it's so useful, it'll happen really quickly in pro suites. It'll be interesting to I watch wonder this stuff because, lay out. I wonder because young people right now, I mean, there's a lot of young people compared to me, more, more every day than there used to be. But young people coming out of the age-ish, the film school-ish age, whether or not they went to film school or college, 
I think are more likely to be using and learning on DaVinci Resolve. And so I wonder if those tools are going to be more native to their process, whereas uh, people who are maybe in their mid to late 20s or early 30s are more likely to have been using Premiere, right? And having learned on Premiere. That's just the, the sense I get. So I wonder if part of it these days will be, since there are multiple dominant platforms, uh, what you came up using will then kind of dictate when you cross over to something else, if you're really comfortable using some of its advanced features to organize your workflow, right? If you've yeah. been using Premiere a lot, maybe you don't want to use some of these. Like you'll switch to DaVinci, but you'll treat it more like you'd treat Premiere. Yeah. It's also interesting to think about how this younger generation is approaching everything differently. I was teaching a class yesterday, and I have a student, early 20s, towards the end of undergrad, and, uh, you know, they've been using DaVinci since they were 16. They shot with an Ursa for the first time when they were 16. And I'm like, oh, my God, at 16, out there shooting with an Ursa, you know, to like 4K ProRes, cutting in Resolve. And, you know, that's been five years they've been doing that because the Ursa has been around for five years now. And you're like, not the Ursa Mini. The original Ursa is about five years old. Right. And they went to a high school that had it. And you're like, oh, yeah, this generation – like the people coming up now have tremendous attachment to all, like tremendous fluidity and native sensation about all of this stuff in a way my generation definitely did not. Although what's interesting on the flip side is they all shoot 2K because they only care about how good it looks on the web and they don't want to pay more money for extra hard drive storage. So it is this funny thing where it's like you guys are the future and you almost don't care about resolution. Yeah. It's like I, a very, you know, it's a funny I thing. I get a sense of that because I see people mock the idea of anyone caring about things like 6K and 8K so commonly in social media and in boards because it's like, who needs that? Where is it going? Where is yeah. it living? And I have I one student, that, and this guy's admittedly in his late 20s. I have one student who's obsessed with 720. He's like, oh my God, I've cracked YouTube. You know what looks best on YouTube? 720p. It's the secret sauce of YouTube. I'm con and he's convinced that's what everybody who makes stuff look good on YouTube is doing, and it's his whole thing. So he's like, yeah, shoot 1080, master 720. And I'm like, all right, good for you. I, I, I respect it. It's a fascinating move. I feel like for, for our age, it was like everything as big as possible. Yeah. Because like, it just kept getting cool when it was like – when the idea of going up to a bigger resolution was like, yes, give me more. I want it to be the biggest image ever and I want to see it projected on the biggest screen. Like that – to me, that was always the like, get me in the dome. And, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, the Cinerama like dome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like and, and show me the original 70 millimeter or whatever. <laughs> well, but also – IMAX. The, <laughs> on the flip side, we're a generation that spent so much money on project – you know, I, yeah, I did my thesis film for like 15 thousand dollars 35 millimeter period piece shot 10 days and like six thousand dollars of that went to film so when we moved to digital and i was like oh my god i'm only spending eight hundred dollars on hard drives like i still when i budget out a project i'm like you know and i haven't shot on film in like nine years but i still am like ah it's so fun that i'm spending only like 750 or whatever on hard drives for this project or whatever when i'm budgeting jobs and yeah that is still with me and I haven't worked on film in nearly a decade. So I come to it and I see that number and I'm like, that's really low. Whereas I think if you're 19, 20, 21 and you're bidding a project and you're budgeting your like senior thesis undergrad project or whatever, the difference between $200 worth of hard drives and $600 worth of hard drives is still $400. That's still a lot of yeah. money. That's still, you know, uh, that's still a big chunk. That's like a quarter of a car I bought once. So like 
it's it is something that I think is, you know, I think that younger generations who have no, I remember this thing about color grading, uh, color grading before two thousand eight was way more expensive. And then what happened is during 2008, producers would go to colorists and be like, hey, budgets are really slashed. Things are tight. The economy is exploding. We're all going to go have to live in the woods soon. What would you do it for? <laughs> and the colorists came down because they were like, oh, it's a bad time. All right, I'll cut you a deal. And then what happened is the window moved. Everybody got used to that lower number. And all of my colorist friends were like, oh, yeah, and the number never went back up. You know, it went down and then the economy got better again. But producers knew how little they could do it for. And they never inched that back up to where it was before 2008. And I think this upcoming generation never knew the film pricing, had no idea of the film pricing. And so hard drive prices, which everybody should always factor in every job you do, it's like the great forgotten thing, hard drive pricing, is a thing. And people are like, oh, I don't really feel like spending extra money on hard drives um, just to have 4K when I don't think I need it. So it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's just yeah. Hearing you talk about that just reminds me of like as I further go back in the vault of my memory, how much money was spent not on just on film way back, but even just on how much more hard drive space cost when we first started mastering on 4K. When 4K was like our negative, and we were finishing 2K, and that was the thing. How much we spent that that space mani- manipulating that file size was a much bigger deal. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> not even it doesn't feel that long ago to me but um god yeah it's uh it's crazy how fast it is changing and at the same time how we're willing to watch things i watched the star wars trailer on my phone yesterday like i used to not want to do things like that now it's like i don't care you know it's changed this week's episode of the no film school podcast is brought to you by filmtools.com Since 1996, Film Tools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, Film Tools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at filmtools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to filmtools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. Speaking of change, it has been 10 years since Moon came out, which, like, I can't believe that. I can't believe it's been 10 years since Moon. That's crazy to me. Um, and there's a piece up on the site this week that we wanted to flag for everybody about how nicely Moon used in uh, in camera and practical effects pretty extensively. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, it's always good to remind people that there are a lot of there are a lot of times where in camera practical effects, especially model work, still um, still yields really amazing results. And I know that a lot of people have started to think of you know, a movie like Moon, sci-fi movies take place in outer space as being like almost 100% computer generated CGI. Um, but, you know, even in Star Wars Phantom Menace, they were building a lot of models for a lot of those scenes. That wasn't all CGI. And Moon 2009, well into the CGI era, did a tremendous amount of practical in-camera effects. So it's totally something worth checking out. That is a very solid movie by Duncan Jones. Um, and then Duncan Jones... Has done something since, correct? 
Yeah, I think he did a World of Warcraft movie, unfortunately for him. not to, no, I didn't see it. I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm not judging it. I just think that that was probably a big challenge um, based on the popular video game. I, I haven't checked his IMDb, though, so I'm not sure what else. But I will say about Moon. So I found this story about this book, Making Moon. Um, I think it was Birth Movies Death, but also reported a few other places. And this book is available on Amazon, Making Moon, a British sci-fi cult classic. And it looks like a beautiful book. And I would 100% recommend checking it out on Amazon, buying it there or somewhere um, where it is sold. Um, we just, you know, we, we looked through the coverage of it. There's some stills, making of stills. The thing that's great about Moon, like you said, they used so many practical effects. And I remember, you know, we've seen a couple phases in the industry where, so 10 years ago when Moon came out, um, people were really, people being the, the status quo in the industry, things being done in a computer visual effects wise was like everything. Like there wasn't much emphasis yet on going back to the model practical mold. It was like everything was in the post um, Lucas prequel era of CGI. And Moon was like this little movie that could. It was made for $5 million, which isn't a lot for a sci-fi movie that looks so great. And it's a great little movie. Like, I mean really taught good script fun to watch like if you haven't seen it highly recommend um and it's just so cool and seamless how they did all this stuff with miniatures and models and at that time that was so out of left field and it kind of was part of an ushering in i think of a bit of a hey how come we don't do this anymore sentiment groundswell in the community that then by the time we got to more recently the Star Wars sequel, Star Wars is such a good special effects bellwether, I guess, for the last 40 years. But by the time we got to the J.J. Abrams movie, there's this big emphasis on, hey, we're not doing it all in computers. We're going to do some models. We're going to do some masks. We're going to do some like practical effects. And they did because it became integrated more. Now it's integrated more. But I feel like it's it's important to remember the context of Moon 10 years ago was that it really had fallen by the wayside for in a large, large sense. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool just to see these pictures of, you know, them on a little moon with their little moon model and the little rovers and all of that. And uh, movies great. And anytime there's honestly books about movies are just one of the best ways to learn about movie making, I think. Um, from books just about filmmakers to biographies to something like this that's a full dive into the, the making of something. Um, I We're on No Film School going to cover more of these and, and try to find them for people and bring them to everyone's attention because this is a short little piece up on the site, but um, it's just let people know that this book is out there and support the books about movies industry because that's one of the great ways we learn, right? It is absolutely one of the great ways we learned. We also had a great, I'm just going to flag this and then we should move on. We had a great post a couple of years ago when the Godfather Notebook came out of everything you can learn from the Godfather Notebook. And oh my God, the Godfather Notebook is such a great book on filmmaking. It's all of the annotated notes Francis Ford Coppola made on the novel of The Godfather in prep. Another great book on filmmaking. And with that... I am look. 
Yes, I'm looking at it up on my shelf now. It's it's amazing. I just literally <laughs> pulled it off my shelf to remind me to flip through it again at lunch today. So that puts us back to our big question this week. This is a big Ask No Film School. David Rains, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I wonder if anyone has spoken to you about California Bill AB5. From my limited understanding, the language of the bill could outright kill independent filmmaking in California. Um, first off, thanks for the question. Uh, and any other questions anyone has, go ahead and email us at, at editor at nofilmschool.com. Um, but I'll let you take it away with the first crack, Charles. So I have so many thoughts on this. First off, it reminds me of the end of Gangs of New York in that. We in the film industry have been sneakily getting away with, like, being on the border edge of labor law for, like, as long as I've been in the film industry and all the other industries have been in the film industry. So we've been dancing over here in this 1099 freelance universe where everybody just sort of lets us be whatever we are. Because, frankly, you know, the thing to remember about entertainment is there's glamour. So people think it, think it means more than it does. But, like, it's not even the number one business in Los Angeles aerospace is the number one business in Los Angeles. You know, entertainment is like the number five. You know, the the motion picture entertainment industry is like a $20 billion a year industry. And like flowers are an $80 billion a year industry. No, no disrespect to flowers. Flowers are great. Um, but like no one thinks of flowers as being this huge dominant culture mover the way we think of entertainment being. But like it's kind of a small business. And because it's a small business, we've been able to skirt around a whole bunch of shit that you know, people should have regulated out a long time ago. Like, you know, there are so many little entertainment companies that have full-time employees that should be 10, that, that they pay 1099, that should be W2, but it's, it's movies and who cares? But what happened the same way at the end of gangs of New York, there's this little street war going on and then the big civil war and the draft rights overwhelm them. A whole bunch of Silicon Valley tech disruptors did the same thing we've been doing in the film industry where they were like, oh, wait a minute. If everybody's an independent contractor, we don't have to pay payroll taxes. We don't have to worry about retirement. Everybody's an independent contractor. It's the future of work. So because they the did gig it, economy, right? the gig economy, which like anybody <laughs> in entertainment has been in forever. Like that's just what we are. Our, our whole lives. <laughs> yeah. Like we're, we're way ahead of you on this one. We know what that looks like. Um, so because of that. And, and they took it too far, as new, you know, new people often do, because Uber and Lyft went so batshit with it, California has to regulate it, which, like, respect. I actually think if you are out there driving for Uber or Lyft 40 hours a week, they shouldn't be able to 1099 you for that personally. They should be paying you payroll style, where you're getting your taxes taken out, and it's paying into Social Security. That is the social contract. If you are working full-time for a company, that's what you should be getting, and I totally respect the law. The big question is whether or not this law is going to really affect entertainment. I mean, there are certain places where it totally should. If you're a production company and you're hiring an editor and you're expecting that editor to be there full-time all year, and I know production companies that have 1099 to people for this. I know lots. Um, that should be payroll. You should just move those people over to payroll. It's like you should just do that. But this specific question was actually about, is this law going to affect indie filmmaking? And I actually don't think it is. Because one of the provisions of the law has, a, you know, there's the ABC factor, right? Where you're evaluating how much work you are doing for people. And like, you know, as an indie filmmaker, it's rare I work for one client for a year, right? I have a lot of clients where I'm showing up for a day. I have a lot of clients where I'm showing up for two days. You know, if you're out there in the indie filmmaking space, 
you know, you're doing an indie feature film, you're shooting for three weeks over the summer. Although technically when you're shooting, uh, you're usually hiring a payroll company and paying people through payroll anyway because the unions really push for that and you get your workman's comp through payroll and things like that. So like that whole space, I frankly don't think are going to be is going to be that heavily affected by this law because it's really yeah, let's, there's like a billion, you know, I, you have a billion clients over the thing. What this law is really targeting is like if you are working for one person. So if you are doing all of your jobs for one company and they're 1099ing you, this law is going to disrupt that. But I don't think like the true indie space is going to be that affected personally. Yeah, let's go through what the ABC test is real quick, just as people learn, yes. just to contextualize what the AB5, uh, this bill, is. Um, to hire an independent contractor, businesses must prove that the worker, A, is free from the company's control, B, is doing work that is central to the company's business, and C, has an independent business in that industry. If they don't meet all three of these conditions, then they have to be classified as employees. So this definitely changes like the the model you suggested of somebody who could be um, working freelance, right? But freelance all the time for the same client. Yeah. If you're doing something every day, every all year long, maybe you're shooting movies for this one producer and this one production company, and you're it's still technic it's you're treating it like a gig and a 1099, but you're really not, you don't have your own business that's thriving from other sources of income as you. It's just this one source. That's essentially what we're talking about. Um, And it's going to be a bigger deal, I think, for Post than for Cruise. Like if you're a key grip, you know, you might book a feature for three months. You might book a TV show for seven or eight months, but it's still really easy to make the case that you have an independent business. You have your own car mount. You have your own gear. You have your own website. You, in between those jobs, you're working for other clients. You have your own business. That'll still be because a lot of people prefer 1099 because it changes what you can write off on your taxes. So a lot of people like being an independent business. They have their own LLC or S Corp, and they like getting those checks independently. So production, I'm less worried about. Post is where it'll get tricky because if you're a freelance editor who works with 20 different clients over the year, easy, no brainer. You're an independent contractor. But like if you're if you're a freelance editor and then someone wants to book you for a full year, you it's hard to make the case you have an independent business left at that point. And you know what is also an interesting like I'll be curious to see how these there's so many variations like we're almost talking in broad extremes just to try and illustrate the point of the law or the bill. But what if you're an editor and you did one job in the year for a month and that's, you know, that was your income. And then you had other sources of income unrelated to that, but, or you didn't, and you just did that one job that year. Um, then what? That was only one thing within the industry. Do they need to 10 Can they, is that a 1099 or since it was only one job, is it closer to being like you were an employee, but only for a month? I mean, I think that there's some, I don't know. I'm curious to see where the where the specific instances fall down along certain lines because this is uh you know there's there's a lot of uh it feels like there's a lot of gray area. I'm I don't I will say though I agree. I don't think it'll really change independent filmmaking as we know it because having produced a bunch of independent films, you are really are often working with people who are going to work on a lot of other things. This is just one like two week shot or whatever, or month shot in their year, but you're also 
likely if you go up to a certain scale to have to use a payroll company and have to do all the other things because the unions are going to ask you to do that, like you said. So payroll companies have a pretty big um, – and what that means, just context on that, is that you give the money to the payroll company that you're going to spend plus probably a deposit so you can't run away. And they're going to pay everybody for you and handle the taxes, et cetera. So they're going to be handling all of your payroll as opposed to you just writing checks to your crew, you, the producer, the production company, for the work they did. And then later they have to report for the year's earnings. Um, so it falls into the business of filmmaking and being an independent contractor and hiring independent contractors. Um, it certainly makes things easier on a production to hire independent contractors. But um, yeah, I just don't, I don't see it really fundamentally shifting the way uh, indie filmmaking works. Right. I can't yeah. see like, unless you're spending the whole year shooting one movie and then it's rolled up, you're Roger Corman. Right. And you use the same crew every time. Right. Would that, would that be a model yeah. of like, you know, like where this could become a problem for an indie filmmaker yeah, or a person who just using, like, even if you're Roger Corman using the same crew every time you're shooting for a month, you're off two months, you're shooting for a month, you're off two months. Like, the big place that this is going to affect is TV, but TV is already largely payroll for a lot of people. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's I don't think this is going to come for us. I think this is really just about the big tech giants and how they run their businesses. And I'm, uh, you know, from where I'm sitting right now, it seems like I don't know if it's going to work, but I like the idea that those workers are getting moved over to being classified W-2 instead of 1099. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably not going to affect entertainment dramatically yet. Yeah, worth I think worth pointing out that this is targeted entirely towards the Uber Postmates uh Lyft businesses that are essentially taking advantage of the fact that they don't have to have full-time employees who are full-time employees. Yeah. I mean, that's really what this law is about. We covered a whole diverse array of topics this week. Uh, if you're in New York, you can come see me. I'm at Adorama next Wednesday, October 30th, giving a presentation on lighting with apps. You can also check out my books, uh, Business and Entrepreneurship and Film. It's been about two or three weeks. Or Color Grading 101. It's been out for a week. Uh, you can follow me on the Twitter at Charles Hain. And if you just like tech shit, check out my other podcast, The Week in Film Tech, which is longer rambles on just film technology. And that is it. Uh, that is me, Charles Hayne, tech writer, No Film School. And I'm George Edelman, uh, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And you can follow us at No Film School on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, the No Film School page. Come to our website, nofilmschool.com. Please like, rate, comment, subscribe to the podcast channel. Check us out on YouTube. We have a channel there. We'll be posting more stuff. And we have tons of videos from the past. Um, and just keep your eyes out for what we're up to because we've got cool stuff coming in and uh yeah every day new posts new stories and uh thanks for listening and don't forget to email us at editor at nofilmschool.com with any questions concerns comments or hate mail because that's always fun too <laughs>